Google has been building large-scale scheduling systems for more than 15 years. Google Borg was started around 2003, giving engineers at Google a unified platform to issue long-lived service workloads, as well as short-lived batch workloads, onto a pool of servers. Since the early days of Borg, the scheduler systems built by Google have matured through several iterations. Omega was an effort to improve the internal Borg system, and Kubernetes is an open-source container orchestrator built with the learnings of Borg and Omega. A scheduling system needs to be able to accept a wide variety of workload types and find compute resources within a cluster to schedule those workloads onto. There's a wide variety of potential workloads that could be scheduled. Batch jobs, stateful services, stateless services, and daemon services. Different workloads can have different priority levels. A high-priority workload should be able to find compute resources quickly, and a low-priority workload can wait longer to find resources. Brian Grant is a principal engineer at Google. He joins the show to talk about his experience building workload schedulers and designing APIs for engineers to interface with those schedulers. This is the second episode we've done with Brian Grant. In a previous episode, we discussed Kubernetes and Borg in greater detail and talked about how Google systems have evolved over time. Before we get started, we have a few events coming up. A Software Engineering Daily meetup at Cloudflare, which will have a conversation with Haseeb Qureshi. That's on April 3rd, and you can find out about it by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. We also have a hackathon we're having for my company, Find Collabs. You can go to findcollabs.com slash hackathon or softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon to find out more. This is a hackathon for anyone with an open source project, an art project, a music project, and a technically minded sensibility. There's a $5,000 prize purse for our hackathon, and you can find collaborators to build stuff with. We are having both a virtual hackathon and an in-person hackathon. You can find all the details at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. And if you come to the in-person hackathon, there will be some food. We'll be getting together and hanging out and hacking on projects. And it'll be at App Academy in San Francisco. With that said, let's get on to today's episode. Brian Grant, you are a principal engineer at Google. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It's good to be back. I enjoyed the last chat we had together. Likewise. So today, I want to talk to you about Kubernetes workloads and workload management more generally. In the context of distributed computing systems, what is a workload? A workload is computational work that you want the distributed computing system to do. So typically, it will be a set of programs that you want to run to perform a specific task. That task might be uh, bounded in duration, short-lived. That would typically be called a batch workload. Or it might be an indefinitely running uh, task, which people would typically call a service that is being provided. And these different workloads, why do we need to categorize them? Why are we separating out different types of workloads? So different types of workloads have very different requirements. Just take the two examples I just made. A service that you want to run indefinitely, typically you would be concerned about availability of that workload. You don't want it to be disrupted in a user-visible way. It will have a footprint on the distributed computing system that will consume 
consume resources for an indefinite amount of time, whereas a batch workload could be very short-lived. It might run for seconds or even sub-second in some cases, or it might run for a very long time, but it will terminate. So you typically want to plan for that period during which it runs and what to do with the computing resources after it runs. There are also other differences between workloads. They may require different amounts or types of resources from the distributed computing system, and that would affect things like scheduling or placement uh, within the distributed computing cluster. An engineer at a place like Google, many of the engineers want to just create a web service or they want to make a query to a distributed query system, and they don't want to think about how the query or their web service is being scheduled onto a distributed computing system. So how much control does the user who is issuing that workload to the distributed computing system, how much control do they need to be given? And and how much specificity do they need to give to the distributed computing system? Do they need to tell the distributed computing system here's my workload and here is what characterizes it. Yeah, so that really depends on whether they're, how common their workload is compared to other workloads run on that distributed computing system or whether there's a special purpose system that has been designed for running their particular type of workload. Typically, in order to ensure that the workload can run adequately, you would at least need to identify the types and amount of resources required by that workload, CPU, computing power, memory, uh, potentially disk or even I.O., throughput requirements, potentially networking requirements, if it's a high uh, HPC application, for instance. Machine learning workloads might require accelerators like GPUs. So it really depends on how specialized the workload is relative to the platform that you're running it on and the relative demand and scarcity of the resources it requires, whether those resources can be easily subdivided uh, and shared amongst multiple workloads and whether they're consumable, that is, you know, while that application or workload is utilizing that resource. No other workloads can utilize the resource. So there are a number of factors there. What I often see is, you know, if there there are enough users running enough of similar types of workloads, they'll be incentivized to build a system or at least a layer that helps deal with that specific type of workload just to make it easier to run day in, day out across multiple people, multiple teams. We're talking about this cluster scheduler abstraction that sits above physical hardware, perhaps virtualized resources. How does the cluster scheduler become aware of all the resources that are sitting beneath it? How does the cluster scheduler know how much CPU and how much RAM and how much disk space is available to do all this scheduling? That really depends on the specific system. If it's running on physical hardware, the operating system might provide a way to automatically detect what resources are available and an agent on the machine could report that information upwards to the scheduling system. If it's a virtual machine, then that information would typically be available through some API. If there are specialized resources that can't be readily characterized by a standard operating system like Linux, then that information might be present in a a database that would have to be queried by the scheduling system. So there are multiple different ways of doing that. And a system like Kubernetes, it uses a mix of techniques to report that information up. The node agent in Kubernetes is called the kubelet. 
and the kubelet can detect some resources available, but it also can be configured to report a specific amount of resources available because the kubelet itself and other agents on the machine themselves require some amount of resources. So it's useful to subtract th- those out so that you don't overcommit the machine. A cluster scheduler is a multi-tenant system, and you want to be able to schedule multiple workloads onto the same physical host. Do you want to schedule a homogenous set of workloads? Like if I have these different types of workloads, for example, these like a query, a big distributed query that is going to run in batch versus a long-lived web service, do I want to schedule all of my queries onto similar machines? Do I want to s- schedule all of my web services onto similar machines? Or do I want to mix and match workloads? Yeah, so this really depends on quite a number of factors. One factor is how elastic the resources are and how elastic the workload is. So, for example, if it's easy to instantly provision new resources for your workload, then you could potentially just create or provision resources on demand and not need to worry about sharing resources on machines. If the workload is also highly elastic, that is, it grows and shrinks, then that might also be preferable because it may be hard to predict which workloads could share resources on specific machines. There's also a trade-off between uh, resource stranding. The typical reason you would want to share, put multiple workloads on a machine is to ensure that all of the resources of the machine are fully utilized or as fully utilized as possible. There's a trade-off between that resource stranding or fragmentation versus performance isolation. Because if you run multiple workloads on the same machine, there's always the potential that they could interfere with each other, either at the operating system level, for example, uh, just consuming CPU time slices or creating memory pressure uh, that results in the application slowing down, or in the hardware itself, for example, cache interference. So that is a trade-off, and uh, performance isolation in Linux has been getting better and better, and in the layers on top, like the container runtimes and in Kubernetes, but there's still always certain types of workloads that will interfere with one another if they're resource intensive. You may also want to do oversubscription, both at the machine level and at the, the cluster level of the whole distributed computing platform. And that is another strategy that's used to try to achieve higher utilization of those resources to run more workloads on the platform than you would think could really fit to just really fill in all the cracks that people usually want to do that if they have a lot of bare metal hardware sitting around, particularly in high performance computing systems. And I have a high performance computing background. So that was certainly a concern that hardware often is very expensive and you can actually measure how expensive it is to leave it idle. So you typically want to push as much work into that type of system as you possibly can. If you have another level of scheduling underneath your workload scheduler, you might be able to use that to achieve higher resource utilization. So if a scheduler like uh, Kubernetes runs on top of virtual machines, for example, then you could potentially bin pack at the virtual machine level as well as the Kubernetes level. And that gives you another avenue for increasing resource utilization. So it really depends on a large number of factors. Diurnal cycles are also really common, both for services where the people accessing those services do it primarily during the day 
wait time. And even for batch services where the people submitting the workloads are only doing that during the daytime. So that leaves idle resources in the off hours. And yeah, there are other, other strategies that can be used to fill, consume those resources. The diurnal scheduling, my favorite example of that is is Netflix, where people are watching lots and lots of movies around 6 to 9 p.m., but then the rest of the day, like people are asleep or they're at work. And so there's a lot of idle machine time. And so if Netflix has some batch jobs, some machine learning jobs that they need to run, they probably want to run them maybe 5 a.m., 4 a.m. They definitely don't want to run them between 6 and 9 p.m. Now, if we can use that as an example for how we might want to strategize about scheduling these different jobs, what do we need to program into the scheduler or what kinds of APIs do we need to give to the programmers to allow them to take advantage of that usage pattern across the users of the cluster. Yeah, that's a really good example where increasing the diversity of workloads can help uh, drive up that resource utilization. So, you know, resource workloads that may need to run at different times. For example, if engineers have work they need to get done and they're working during the day, then they can run those workloads very easily before that peak, uh, those peak viewing hours. Or, you know, if they have something that can, can run overnight, and they can review the results the next day. They can run them during the night, as, as you suggested. So I think there are a few different mechanisms, and this relates to the notion of priority and also quality of service, that where you can control which workloads should have precedence and, or priority over the computing resources at any given point in time. So the f- one type of priority is in terms of ordering, that is, which workloads do you consider first for executing on the resources available? And that's especially common in batch queuing systems. And there's a project in the Kubernetes space called KubeBatch that is implementing exactly that. So that mechanism has a scheduler that looks to see whether enough resources are available at a given time to run enough of the tasks of a batch job. And if there are, then it will execute that batch job. So you can imagine if you have a very large batch job, that might block smaller batch jobs from running. So then you need to make a priority decision about do you run the uh, smaller batch jobs first or the large batch jobs first. Another type of priority is preemption. So if you have existing workloads utilizing the resources and a new workload is submitted, do you disrupt the workloads that are already running, preempt them, uh, and start running the new workload? Or do you let the existing workloads finish? So that is an additional type. What we've seen in the past inside of Google is that the workloads with the highest churn are batch jobs, especially short-running batch jobs. So batch jobs tend to disrupt other batch jobs as opposed to disrupting continuously running services. And that can be very inefficient because when they get preempted, you lose the work often that those batch jobs had done if they don't complete or if they don't checkpoint their state frequently enough. So often you want to try to let those workloads finish if at all possible, unless there is some sort of deadline that needs to be met for some other batch workload. And then the third type of priority is uh, we call quality of service in Kubernetes. And that determines how the the workload actually performs on the machines while it's running. Uh, So if you are running, for example, a latency-sensitive continuously running service where users expect response in milliseconds or even microseconds, then that workload would need to have a very high quality of service. You don't want it to get interrupted, even at a very fine granularity. Whereas often batch workloads are latency-tolerant. There isn't anyone waiting for a response immediately. It just needs to complete over minutes or hours. And slowing that workload down would be acceptable. 
CPU especially is what we call compressible. You can reduce the amount of CPU you give to an application and often it can still run just fine as if it's latency tolerant. Um, memory is not as compressible typically because performance, if you start, start to swap out memory pages, degrades enough that that doesn't really pay off. But CPU is typically very compressible. So you would run these latency tolerant batch workloads at a lower quality of service. And that helps ensure that the more latency sensitive applications can get the resources they need when they need it at a very fine granularity and not disrupt the quality that they're providing to their clients. We've spoken a little bit so far about the usage of a workload scheduler. As somebody who has been working on these workload schedulers for a long time, you've had a lot of room to think about API design and API consumption of a a workload system like this. So I imagine to some degree you want to offer programmers sane defaults so that they don't have to think too much about the priorities and the other workload scheduler specific details of issuing their web service or issuing their batch job to the cluster scheduler. But to some degree, you you want to allow them rich configuration if they do want to dive into the details. What have you learned about API design principles for workload schedulers? What I've learned is that the interface to this scheduler, as you said, needs to be rich enough that a person or an automation system that wants to provide all the details can absolutely do that. So I think this is an example where you can compose multiple systems together to produce the ease of use you need for a particular type of workload. As I mentioned before, it's common to create layers on top of a a base scheduling system that help optimize the execution, scheduling and execution of particular types of workloads. In Kubernetes and in Borg, there are batch schedulers, for example, that are layered on top of the base system. So most of the tools that work with that system, whether they're monitoring tools or configuration tools or other management tools, all still work. And the one thing you're specializing is the scheduling. Additionally, in order to figure out what resources to request for a given workload, you can add horizontal autoscalers or vertical autoscalers to decide the number of instances and the amount of CPU, memory, disk, and other resources that the workload requires by monitoring the workload and then providing that feedback back to the system to fine-tune the amount of resources it requests to ensure that it executes with higher performance or that it completes faster, or that it's more efficient uh, and doesn't strand as many resources, if that's what you care about. So through this layered approach and uh, through composable systems, you can satisfy a wider variety of workloads than if you built a monolithic system that made very specific assumptions. Because then the system might work well for long-running batch jobs, but not short-running batch jobs, or it might work well for services, but not work well for machine learning workloads. You've worked on Borg, you've worked on Omega and Kubernetes. These are different points in the lineage of Google-related scheduling systems. How has your perspective on workload management evolved through these different projects? I think you know one thing I learned, one common thing about all of those projects that we eventually added was support for multiple schedulers. And the typical driving use case for that is the difference between service scheduling and batch scheduling. I'd have to say there's also can be cases where it's useful to shuffle around long running service instances. And that's where an additional scheduler, we call it the, actually the D scheduler 
in Kubernetes to remove instances of a workload from specific nodes in order to defragment resources or decommission particular nodes or to rebalance the workloads for some reason. You can try to satisfy multiple objectives in a single scheduler, and Borg did that for a long time. In some cases, it's simpler because you can ensure that the policies are complementary. But where cases get complicated is things like, in a, in a batch scheduler, you would typically want to co-schedule some number of instances of the batch workload. That is, if a batch workload requests to run 20 instances in order to complete its work quickly, you might want to ensure that you can run at least 10. Otherwise, you know, if you're running only one, it would take too long. So in order to make a decision like that, you have to make larger scale decision than an instance-specific scheduler of the type that's in Kubernetes, say, that's just looking to place one pod at a time or one container at a time uh, onto some specific node that typically wouldn't be looking at enough information. So it can be simpler to have a more dedicated scheduler for that use case, particularly if you can make more assumptions about the workload, for example, that they are latency tolerant and they have flexible CPU requirements, then you can make a better decision, a more informed decision just for that specific type of workload. But it's really not until you need to run those diverse workloads that you need to have multiple schedulers. If you're really just running a specific workload, then you might just want your own custom scheduler just for that work workload. So we made the scheduler in Kubernetes pluggable from very early Early on, and we have seen a few cases where users have swapped out the scheduler for a special purpose one. For example, they may want to try to co-locate storage and computation, or they may just have a very specific workload with specific scheduling needs, and they don't need all the general scheduling features, and they want the scheduler to perform faster for shorter-lived batch workloads, for instance, so they could potentially just strip out that extra functionality that they don't need in order to make it run faster. So they're really, it's really driven by needs of the workload. To dive into a microcosmic example that you just touched on, I like the idea, the um, the example of, of the descheduling problem. So maybe you've got a piece of hardware, the hardware is uh, starting to malfunction, and so you want to decommission all the workloads that are on it and move them to different machines without interrupting the service. Now, this seems like it can be potentially difficult if some of the workloads on that machine are stateful. So, for example, if you're running Google Maps on one of these uh, one of these virtual nodes that are sitting on this hardware, and a user is getting navigation directions, you don't want the user to feel the interruption in service as their uh, their Google Maps backend is uh, is decommissioned and issued onto another node. How do you solve that kind of problem? Yeah, so there are two answers to that. One is if you need the storage to be continuously available, um, then you need to replicate it so that it can be accessed from uh, multiple instances simultaneously. So generally, a service like that would have a replication and sharding strategy where uh, the data is available on at least two, for example, storage systems at a time so that one can be disrupted while the other one is still available. Or often a, a common strategy is in what we call N plus two. If you need N replicas to serve the steady state capacity or the peak capacity or whatever you're planning for, then plan at least two extra copies, one for planned outages, uh, like when you're decommissioning a machine gradually or unplanned outages, like when it crashes and goes down immediately. So those planned 
outages, how you would decommission a machine. In Kubernetes, we have some primitives that were inspired by what we did in Borg, where we can cordon off a machine, prevent additional work from being placed there, and then gradually drain off the tasks and uh, the pods on that node and find new homes for them. And once the new instances have been scheduled, then the old ones can be killed and the node, once it's empty, can be can be removed. The rate at which you disrupt the instances in a service really depends on how quickly new instances can start up and warm up. Potentially, some instances may need to read a lot of state from a storage system or populate a lot of state in memory and build indices so that that data can be served very quickly. Uh, that may take a long time, especially if it's a very large, requires a large amount of resources. You know, filling gigabytes of RAM, for example, just takes a lot of time or reading a lot. Gigabytes and gigabytes or even terabytes of storage and copying it down takes a lot of time. So we introduced a concept called the pod disruption budget in Kubernetes, where you can actually specify how many instances it's safe to disrupt simultaneously, how long you predict it will take for new instances to become available, and that will limit the rate at which maintenance systems will disrupt the instances of that workload. That was based on a, inspired by a system we use in board called Seriously, the Safe Disruption Service. Just, I just like the name pod disruption budget. Let, let's talk about Kubernetes. So Kubernetes has these different workloads, stateful, stateless, daemon, and batch. Can you describe the taxonomy of these different workloads and, and why it was decided that these are the four characteristic workloads that we're going to divide Kubernetes jobs into? Yeah. So those four categories were four general categories that we observed were super common in Borg. Uh, we started with stateless workloads because most of the applications that users create that are microservices, that are cloud native, 12-factor is a term that has been used. The best practice in the industry is considered to make them not have persistent local state to store their state in some other storage service like a database or a NoSQL store, a key value store or whatnot. And that makes it easier and safer, for example, to horizontally autoscale those instances and make your service elastic and grow and and shrink with demand. It also makes it easier to make that service highly available uh, by replicating the functionality since no specific state is held by any specific instance. That is the for the especially the early adopters of Kubernetes. That was the most common type of workload they're running. So we started with that one first. It also happened to be easier to implement. So we started with that. Initially, that was functionality was provided by the replication controller, which eventually was superseded by replica set. And we built the deployment controller on top of that in order to provide uh, progressive rolling updates. So you could update your instances in place, which is a super common need for any DevOps oriented team that wants to deploy very frequently in order to improve their development and deployment velocity, which is, again, a typical goal of someone who's adopting containers, Kubernetes, cloud-native, and DevOps patterns and and, uh, approaches to managing their applications. The stateful workload, stateful workloads, what we found was um, that even though everyone implements stateless microservices, the state, they typically have state that has to be kept somewhere. And while there are managed database options available, there are more of these stateful applications than, than are available through managed services. There are caching layers 
layers like Redis and Memcache. There are SQL databases like MySQL and Postgres. There are NoSQL databases like Cassandra, for instance. There are any number of these things, even monitoring systems, message buses. There are lots of different types of applications that have state. Uh, so there's very high demand for running those types of workloads. Uh, so we created Stateful Set, which is somewhat of a minimalistic primitive that enables the bare minimum of what you need to run a stateful workload, which is to have to run a specific number of instances where each instance has its own identity and typically some associated storage. In a stateless workload, typically all of the instances can be considered fungible and, and they don't need to have individual unique identities. They're all pretty much the same. In a stateful workload, typically you would have different instances holding uh, different data or different responsibilities. So that's where you need each instance to have its own specific identity. Now with uh, daemon set, we wanted to be able to use uh, Kubernetes own management primitives for running agents on every node or every node in a set. And that is a use case we saw in Borg as well. Borg didn't have a specific primitive for that. So people tried to use its, its one job primitive to, to do that use case, either to run, well, a typical example was to run very large storage system that was running on every node. In Kubernetes, there are other use cases as well. We're using it to run the cube proxy, the, the service proxy on every node. People also use it to run monitoring agents and logging agents, policy enforcement agents, other types of things that they want to run on every node. And having a primitive that's dedicated just to that uh, enables you to make better decisions about how to keep that workload running and not interfering with other workloads on each node. The last category, batch, is again something that we just found was very common even for people who are running services. Typically those services produce some kind of data like analytics data or logging data, information about how people are using the service or transactions that people perform with the service. That data needs to be processed uh, and typically people would use batch workloads to do that, although you could also use a streaming data processing application to do that as well. And there are a lot of uh, sort of one-off tasks or, as you mentioned, different types of queries and so on that may be short-lived that need to be executed. So batch workloads are a good fit for that. And batch workloads would tend to have a different shape than serving workloads. They might not have a fixed number of instances at a particular time. They may have a number of instances that they need to execute, but perhaps sequentially instead of concurrently. So that's why we created a specific abstraction for batch jobs in Kubernetes. And now as we tr find people using batch jobs, for more different scenarios, such as for uh, workflows, for continuous integration tasks, for machine learning pipelines and such, people are finding they need even other abstractions than those four simple ones. So one thing that we did in Kubernetes is we, we made a decision once we were at the point that we were adding the, the second abstraction after replication controller, uh, we could have either made replication controller more generic and flexible or add additional ones. We decided to add additional ones because we felt that people would would need to extend Kubernetes to run more different types of workloads that wouldn't fit into even a more flexible abstraction. So we really wanted to establish that pattern of if you have a different type of workload and, it, and the existing controller doesn't do a great job at managing that workload, just create a new primitive and a controller to manage the workload the way you want. We see that in Mesos where people build frameworks for specific workloads. But in, in building a framework, you also need to build a scheduler, you need to build an API, you need to build 
an executor for that workload. And a lot of that doesn't need to be different for different types of workloads. It's really, uh, you know, sometimes the scheduler needs to be different, but often it doesn't. Uh, sometimes you may want a different style of API, but often the same declarative pattern will work. Sometimes you might need a different executor, like especially for running very, very lightweight, uh, short running containers, but typically the same container runtime, the same executor would work. So Kubernetes factors those pieces in a way that you can replace just the part that you need to replace and customize that for your specific need and not have to replace all the others. Would there be any advantage to defining additional workload types for Kubernetes? There may be. I think we'll have to see. One additional API that we created was the cron job. And I think that is one that people feel needs more work. I mean, again, basically every team in Google that has is running a serving workload is running some sort of cron job. And there's a separate system that schedules those inside of Google, you know, performing it something just at night, as you suggested earlier, or multiple times a day. That's a super common need. As we've created more different types of management APIs in Kubernetes, we found a need that uh, maybe you need to be able to spawn more different types of things at specific times. So I think we'll probably see more generic systems be developed for launching arbitrary types of tasks within Kubernetes. Right now, the operator pattern is extremely popular. So we have a, a mechanism called custom resource definitions in Kubernetes that lets users or now even the Kubernetes project itself create new resource types in Kubernetes very easily. And then you can add a custom controller that knows how to manage that resource type and it behaves similarly to the built-in types in the system. So I think the last time we tried to, to look, uh, there were maybe about a thousand uh, different projects that were using custom resource definitions, mostly to run workloads, although also to perform workloads or manage logs or do all types of other things. Uh, but that's a pattern where you can build a an operator to manage a specific type of workload like etcd or, or MySQL or any other type of off-the-shelf component that you like. So probably as opposed to more built-in generic workload controllers, will probably make it easier to build custom ones. Could you give an example of somebody who has built something with a custom resource definition? Just because this is a, a very common subject in, in a lot of the Kubernetes articles and conversations that I have. Uh, custom resource definitions is, is, a, is a very common topic. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear an example. Yeah, so I can use an example I was just looking at earlier today, the Cube Batch project in the Kubernetes SIGs GitHub org has used custom resource definitions to create their batch abstractions. So in a, what they added to the, in addition to the built-in job type, they created a type called pod group that specifies the minimum number of instances of the job that need to execute concurrently. And the batch scheduler uses that in, in a conjunction with the job specification to decide when the instances of each individual job can be co-scheduled at any given point in time. So that's one example. Another example would be Argo. The Argo project built a workflow system that can execute tasks uh, sequentially and in parallel to perform, you know, either ETL workloads or originally they built it for build and test workloads. Often in build and test workloads, you may want to perform a build and then run some tests 
or run a sequence of tests or perform a sequence of preparational tasks before you run tests. That is also being used by the Kubeflow project to run machine learning pipelines. So with these custom resource definitions, you can specify desired state for the particular type of activity you want to be performed by a controller that watches for that state in the Kubernetes API server. And that controller can then report back its status. The custom resource definition has a, a mechanism for that. So you can follow the, the patterns and best practices of all the built-in Kubernetes API types. In zooming out to think about cluster scheduling as a category of problems, it is similar to the knapsack problem in computer science. It's, it's probably not a problem that we'll ever feel like we have completely solved. We're going to make incremental improvements over time and get better and better at, at issuing workloads to available resources. But we want to be able to know how we are improving in our utilization over time. How can you benchmark a cluster scheduler? Yeah, so one of the things that Google did very early on and after Docker was created is we created a project called C-Advisor because we knew that monitoring the amount of resources containers were using would be a common need for doing things like auto-scaling or scheduling. It's also one of the big benefits of containers compared to VMs is that containers are more transparent. So you can easily see how much resources they're using, the C-group mechanisms in the Linux kernel make it easy to collect that information on a per-container basis, so a per-application basis, uh, without additional agents, really. And C-Advisor, we eventually built into the Kubelet, the Kubernetes node agent as well. So that, that information is collected and reported as part of what we call core metrics in Kubernetes, and it's made available to the horizontal pod autoscaler uh, and to monitoring systems. A lot of monitoring systems that have built-in Kubernetes support uh, integrate support for that. You can also execute kubectl top and get a list of the uh, the pods that are utilizing the most resources on your cluster uh, very easily. So you can monitor the amount of CPU, memory, and other resources over time, and also monitor the amount of available capacity and compute a level of utilization of each resource. So then if you make changes to the scheduler that like the Kubernetes scheduler is actually configurable. So you can change the priority functions it uses to decide placement of uh, pods and containers on individual nodes. And you could actually measure how it performs based on the achieved utilization. Or if you're running an autoscaler and you tune that, again, you can measure how well utilized your, your nodes are. Because each pod in Kubernetes, the way they get scheduled is they have a request, uh, which is how much CPU memory and other resources they ask for and that the scheduler looks for. And they have a limit, which is the maximum amount they can use. And if you have a difference between the request and the limit, you can effectively oversubscribe nodes. The schedule will place more containers on each node than the nominal resource capacity of the node. And if they, as long as they don't all burst and use the maximum amount they are allowed up to their limit all at the same time, then you can achieve a higher resource utilization. So it's not just a function of the scheduler. It's also a function of other ways you configure the system and how much your workload changes in terms of the amount of resources it's using. For example, if your tasks are very short-lived and they get submitted in bursts, then you may have lower utilization just because you have resources idle while new instances are being scheduled. So this is actually something that we found inside of Google is that you can try to optimally schedule. Even if you optimally schedule and you spent, invested the time and resources in doing that, it doesn't necessarily help because of all these other factors. Like you may need to reserve excess capacity 
capacity to ensure that there's always enough CPU so that their latency-sensitive workloads can absorb load spikes. Or due to maintenance tasks, you may need to move things around so frequently that can never actually achieve the ideal placement that you computed. Especially in the cloud, where the resources you're running on are themselves elastic to some degree, you can create new virtual machines, you can delete virtual machines. It may not make sense to try to over-optimize the, the placement of workloads onto those nodes. Maybe you should optimize the shapes of those nodes instead. So Google, actually, Google Cloud actually provides the ability to customize the shapes of the resources. It's not just that they give you a short menu of options A, B, and C, and you have to try to you know, fill whatever shapes are available. You can actually create custom shapes. So if you have workloads that have an unusual CPU to RAM ratio, for example, you can, you can request virtual machines that have that same shape. We recently did a show about Uber's Peloton system, the scheduler that they're building for their workloads. We've also talked to Netflix about their scheduling system. Have you had any fruitful conversations with other companies about how they're doing workload scheduling? So some folks working on Kubernetes just started talking to the Peloton team. I don't know how specific the needs of that workload is, that it requires a special scheduler. I'm not familiar with that. Netflix we have spoken to over the years. They built their Titus platform based on Mesos in order to form fit their other open source projects that predated their use of containers. So I think their platform was more driven by, you know, they needed something to fit in their software ecosystem is what I understood from their blog posts about it and from previous discussions with them. So I'd have to say, you know, in terms of demands of workload, I mean, each workload has some unique characteristics and you could always tune a system for that. I have to say, I haven't seen anything radically new or different compared to what I've seen in inside of Google and Borg or in my prior work on high-performance computing. I've worked on high-performance computing on GPUs, high-performance computing on big parallel systems. And, you know, details change over time, but the patterns really do not. And the strategies don't really change very much either. All right. Final question. Let's say we're going into the future and I want to add some new hardware types to my infrastructure. Like I want to add a few quantum computers to my infrastructure. And I've only got a few quantum computers, but there are tons of workloads that would love to run on my quantum computers. How would we need to alter our architecture for for a scheduler that would be able to include some quantum computers uh, or or more generally some new kinds of hardware some new kinds of uh, availability for scheduling workloads onto yeah so that relates to the point i made earlier about scarcity of the resources versus demand for those resources another example that is coming up sooner maybe is workloads that run on different operating systems for example we're in the process of adding windows support to kubernetes 114 and or finalizing the windows support or running on different microprocessor architectures like ARM for doing, say, mobile mobile phones testing or simulation. So in that case, if there is high demand for resources that are scarce, there are a couple of things you want to do. Machine learning on GPUs, I guess, would be another example. First of all, you want to prevent workloads from running on those resources that either can't run on those resources or don't absolutely require those resources. So in Kubernetes, we have a mechanism we call taints. And taints can be applied to nodes. Those taints have associated properties. 
so that you can specify only workloads that require those properties actually can run there. So that's the first step is to actually just protect those resources from squandering them. Uh, the next step is you actually need to heavily prioritize the set of workloads that execute. And, you know, that's been done for decades with things like queuing systems where you can, if you can categorize the workloads, maybe by long running or short running or by priority in some way or by budget, you could potentially price them. Some sort of dynamic pricing is another approach to that. You know, whoever is willing to pay the most, you would execute those workloads first on the resources that might become necessary if they're sufficiently scarce. So demand pricing, I guess, uh, spot instances are sort of the opposite of that, <laughs> where you have surplus resources that you want somebody to use, even if they pay potentially less uh, than the normal amount. So uh, yeah, I mean, as, as I said, I think there aren't really new strategies that you would use. It's just more the details of how you optimize the system for the exact patterns that you're seeing, potentially emergent patterns. If there's a, a relatively steady, in the steady state, the amount of resources can satisfy all of the demands on them, then you just need to prioritize and spread out the workloads over 24 hours a day. But if there's more demand than the resources can actually, they can't actually satisfy all the demand, then you would need to do something like demand pricing in order to choose. Brian Grant, thank you for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Wow.